Short Mystery and Suspense Collection 13 Montague's New Act by Carl Mason This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Montague's New Act August 13 Strange how some little unconscious action or trivial incident will suddenly awaken a train of thought. I mused as I stood in my rooms, staring at the postmark on a letter from my mother, which I had just torn open. It was the date in the circle which brought the whole affair to my mind and recalled the favor I had promised Montague. Andrews, he had said to me while he was packing his trunk, if I'm not back in a year from tonight, I wish you'd go down to the bank and get the contents of my lockbox. The lease expires then. There's nothing of great value in it. Keep what you want and destroy the rest. You'll find some old letters and clippings which may give you a theme for one of your stories. He handed me the key, told me the password, and said that he had left instructions for me to act for him. I was sorry to lose such a good companion, but as he seemed so set on getting back to England, his old home, I did not express my whole feelings, not wanting to cast him into one of the fits of depression he was subject to. And now a year had passed. From that night I had neither heard from nor seen him. Today was August 13. I think it was Montague's appearance which first attracted me when I saw him at the club where we both lived. He suggested so much vitality held in reserve, dignity so delicately poised, his broad, powerful shoulders, his erect, almost stately carriage, his white hair, worn rather long, his immaculate dress all made him a mark of admiration for both feminine and masculine eyes. Even if he was quite a few years the older, some time later, when we did meet by introduction, we almost instantly seemed to be drawn to each other and soon became close companions. When I say that we became close companions, I must explain. Although we were a great deal in each other's company, neither ever made a confidant of the other. At least Montague never made one of me. He always seemed to hold me at a distance about some things. Whenever there were any allusions made to his past life, the lines in his face would tighten his eyes narrow somewhat, and he would either change the subject instantly or lapse into a moody dejection, which would sometimes last for days. It did not take me long to understand that here was a subject he did not care to touch upon, something that seemed to give him pain, and out of respect for his feelings I would not press the topic. Consequently, I never found out who Montague, a name I always believed to be assumed, really was. He was, I soon learned, a keen observer, a student of human nature. His deductions were always keen and 
cutting as a scalpel, going right to the heart of things. He was continually studying men's faces, their gestures, their mannerisms. He did it all so earnestly, it soon appeared to me to be no mere diversion or amusement. Once or twice, I almost came to the conclusion that he was really searching for some one particular person. To my knowledge, he neither received a letter nor wrote one during the time I knew him. He never seemed to be extravagant, either in his pleasure or way of living. On the other hand, while apparently without vocation, he always had plenty of money to supply his needs. One thing Montague was extremely careful of, his physical condition. He was always early to bed and early to rise. He exercised regularly in the gymnasium at the club or at the YMCA. On the horses or the horizontal bars, there were none, not even the instructors who could surpass him. Some there were who ventured the opinion that at some time in his youth he may have been a professional gymnast or performer. One day, while he was under the spell of one of his moods of depression, he gave me a fleeting glimpse of another side of his nature, which heretofore I had never noticed. It was when one of the young chaps at the club was giving a farewell dinner before his wedding. Montague and I were near the door of the banquet room, and as we passed we noticed the groom-elect's face all wreathed in smiles. He looks happy, I remarked. He has a right to be, answered Montague. It's the greatest event in any man's life. It wasn't so much what he said, but the way he said it, that made me feel for him. There was such a note of sadness in his voice, as if at some time the iron of a great disappointment had entered deep into his soul. From this I concluded that in the past some searing misfortune must have fallen his lot. It was I who suggested taking the small furnished apartment up in Harlem. June had set in hot and sticky, and the little cubbyhole rooms at the club were already stuffy and oppressive. Montague thought it a capital idea, and we made the change to two bedrooms, a bath, and a small kitchen, which we seldom used. Montague occupied one of the bedrooms and I the other. There was no choice, for each had a window opening onto a wide, well-lighted, airy court which separated our building from the one fronting on the other street by a good twenty feet. Talk about comfort, I remarked several evenings later when I came home from my work on the paper. Why, the asphalt's melting on the streets downtown. It's so hot. Hot, Montague exclaimed, knocking the ashes from his pipe into the tray on the windowsill near where he was sitting. Why, I've been as comfortable as can be. There's always a breeze here. Dusk was just blending into night as I glanced out of the window through which the air was playing. A man, across the court in the room opposite, turned on the light and stood outlined as in a frame. Montague, attracted by the sudden flare, also looked up. For a moment I thought I saw him start, but if he did, he immediately regained full control of himself 
and for the time being I completely forgot the incident. The next few days found Montague in one of the worst of his moody spells. He seldom left the house, but kept to his room, smoking and reading, with what seemed to me no interest in either. Shortly after, thinking to arouse him from his apathy, I proposed a visit to the circus which was then playing its annual engagement at the garden. But as he very politely yet emphatically refused by offering some transparent excuse, I did not press the invitation. Then came the fatal night. The heat was terrific and had been for more than a week without relief. The nights were as bad as the days, with little or no breeze. Even up in our little apartment we began to feel uncomfortable. Toward evening, however, clouds began to bank up on the west, giving some hope, but they just hung on the horizon from lack of wind to move them, and served only to increase the discomfort by intense humidity. I threw my window wide open to catch any vagrant breeze which might be stirring, as I glanced out, I noticed that there were no lights in any of the windows of the house across the court, excepting the one directly opposite Montague's. It was only a struggling, pale, yellowish-blue gas flame turned very low, but vaguely outlining the room between the heavy curtains, which at that time of the season, I remembered, seemed very inappropriate and depressing. I turned away with a feeling little short of a premonition that something very terrible was going to happen. Aside from weather, there was nothing which could have induced the mood. In order to cast off this sinister spell, I lighted a cigarette and sat down to wait for some of the boys from the office who were coming for our weekly session of penny ante. None of us could afford to play high, so we usually played long the game often continuing well into the morning with a light lunch, sometime during a lull in the amusement. While I was smoking and waiting, Montague was in the bath. Later, after we had begun to play, he came into the room for a few moments, clad only in his pajamas and dressing gown. He spoke very cheerfully, wishing all of us good luck, but I noticed at the time that his humor seemed rather forced, also that he carefully avoided the window. Montague never joined in our game, so after watching several hands, he bade us good night and retired, leaving his door, which opened directly into my room, ajar. The game was not a spirited or excited one that night. The cards did not seem to run right, and the betting lagged dismally. Only occasionally did one of us have a good hand, and then, usually, there was no one to stay in the pot. "'Deal me out this round,' said Bob Whitcomb about midnight, as he pushed back his chair and arose, stretching himself. "'I'm going to see if it won't change my luck. I haven't had a pair in two hours.' He lighted his pipe and strode over to the window, where he stood enjoying the fragrance of the tobacco and letting the air play on his face. "'Great! Guns, he exclaimed a few minutes later as a vivid flash of sheet lightning spread itself across the heavens. Did you see that? We're going to have some storm. A rumble of thunder followed this speech, 
and large drops of rain began to spatter on the window ledge and fire escape. Then came that lull which nearly always precedes a storm of great violence. The breeze ceased. The rain stopped as quickly as it had come, and a deadly, ominous hush fell on all outside. Suddenly, this death-like stillness was punctuated by a scream. Great God! exclaimed Bob, staggering back, his face as white as the walls. Did you hear that? What was it? we all shouted, starting up from the table. Over there, said Bob, shaking with great agitation, as he pointed to the room with the tiny gas light in the apartment across the court. There was a man over there a moment ago. He was about to close the windows when someone from behind the curtain struck him down. I never saw such a look of horror on a man's face in all my life. Other heads were now appearing at all the windows despite the downpour of rain which had begun at that moment. Bob had received an awful shock from the sight he had witnessed. It was several minutes before he fully recovered his composure, and only for the coolness and presence of mind of Montague, who, having heard the commotion, had entered the room and was pressing a flask of liquor to Bob's lips. I do believe the boy would have fainted dead away. We left Whitcomb in Montague's care and hurried over to the other building. The police had not yet arrived, and the occupants of the other apartments, attired in a varied assortment of hastily snatched-up garments, were making an attempt to open the only door which led to the scene of the crime. However, their efforts were without reward, as the door was still barred on the inside by some extra heavy bolt, proving conclusively that the assailant must still be in the room with the victim for no one had been seen to leave by the window, which was the only other way of escape. Finally, the police, who now arrived, forced the door, and with drawn revolvers cautiously stole into the room, fully prepared to meet some unknown foe. But there was none. Save for the victim, there was no one in the room. By the dim light of the flickering gas flame, I saw on the floor, over against the baseboard, just beneath the window partially covered by the curtain, which, in his fall, he had torn down, the huddled-up body of a man. Satisfied that the assailant was not about, the officers turned their attention to the figure on the floor. It was lying partially on its side, the face toward the window, the right hand hidden beneath the body that the man was dead was plainly evident. But the manner in which he had come to his end was not apparent until the body was turned over. From the left breast, driven to the hilt, protruded a heavy, wicked-looking dagger. At the same time, it became evident that the victim had made some effort to defend himself, for as the police moved the body, a revolver of heavy caliber fell from the dead man's right hand. The murderer must have been too quick, however, for not a cartridge in the weapon had been discharged. All search, no matter how minute or careful, failed to bring to light the slightest evidence on which to establish either the motive for the crime 
or the identity of the perpetrator, how the murder had entered the room, or how an escape had been effected after the fatal stabbing has never become known. No one was seen to come, and stranger still, no one was seen to go. The door bolted from within proved conclusively that the assailant had not left the room that way. The window, the only other avenue of escape, had been continually watched by many eyes from the very moment when the scream had sounded and Whitcomb had witnessed the blow struck. No one had been seen to depart that way. Every inch of the walls and ceilings had been carefully examined and sounded many times. Even the floors had been torn up in the hope of finding some clue to the mystery, but all without result. The identity of the victim was easily and quickly determined. Captain Bonda, at least so he was billed, was one of the featured performers of the circus then playing at the garden. The posters described him in glowing terms as the world's renowned champion marksman. Further than this, little could be learned of the man's private life. Circus performers, for the most part, are nomadic, wandering from town to town, year in and year out, first with one tinted aggregation, then another, oftentimes changing their names as well as their acts. That the mystery of Captain Bonda's death was never cleared up was no fault of the police department. The best men on the detective force were put to work, but the case, baffling even them, after several months was finally marked on the records as unsolved. It was perhaps a month or so after the death of Captain Bonda that Montague first expressed a desire to return to his old home in England. About a week later, one evening when I came back from my work at the office, I was surprised to find him packing his trunk. It was then he asked me to look after the contents of his lockbox at the bank, should he not return within a year. That year is up. Tomorrow I shall fulfill my promise. Perhaps in writing the above facts last night I may have produced the impression that at the time I held some suspicion that Montague was in some way connected with the Captain Bonda mystery. But I assure you, up until this morning, when I opened his lockbox at the trunk, nothing was further from my mind. I found in the little steel case what I least expected, a large, well-filled envelope, carefully sealed and addressed to me. That was all. Noting the care Montague had exerted in preparing all this, I felt there must be something in the packet which was intended for my eyes alone. Therefore I refrained from breaking the seal until I reached the seclusion of my own room. In order that you may experience the same sensations and surprises, I herewith give you the letter, or rather a short history of Montague's life, as he had written it to me, in his clear and distinctly legible handwriting, starting off, Dear Andrews. Later I shall also describe the photographs which accompanied it. Last night I told you I was going to my old home in England. That 
was subterfuge. England is not my old home, nor am I going there. My one regret in leaving is that my departure will sever our companionship. We have been friends for quite a while, and as you have so patiently and silently tolerated my many moods and eccentricities, I feel that I owe you an explanation for some of my actions. When you read this, I shall be far away. If you care to, you may use what I am about to tell you as a theme for one of your stories. Montague is not my right name. I know you have suspicioned that long ago. What it really is does not matter now. That I have suffered, and that I have had one great misfortune in my life, I also know you must have suspected. I want to thank you for respecting my feelings enough not to have tried to open old wounds. This is not intended as a confession. I am simply relating facts, and as I am going to tell you everything, I may as well start at the beginning. Twenty years ago, as you can judge from my present physical condition, I was in my prime professionally. My people before me have all been performers of one kind or another. If you were to trace them back, you would find some to have been with the earliest wagon shows of the United States, and even mountebanks or conjurers in Europe and the Orient. Naturally, as a child, I was brought up and trained along the same lines. My earliest recollections are of the circus, the spangles on my mother's bodice, the blare of the bands, the smell of animals and sawdust. Pride begins young. At five, I felt it respond to the applause from the tiers of seats when my mother, swinging head downward from her trapeze, would catch my tiny wrists as I sped through space, hurled by my father from his swaying bar high up in the crown of the big top. Time, like everything else about the circus, moves fast. At twenty, I was recognized as one of the foremost in my profession. It was about this time that I originated the trick which established my fame. Perhaps my early experience and the training of my parents really suggested it to my mind, and it was the danger of the act, I suppose, which appealed to both the audience and myself. The least false move, the slightest miscalculation, would bring disastrous results, perhaps death. But the applause by which every performer's salary is gauged meant much to my income and my own satisfaction as an artist. A year or so later, May Bell came into my life. I can still recall when I first saw her, a slight, trim little figure in pink tights, standing over near the exit leading to the dressing tents. She was intently watching me as I sat in my trapeze, high up under the canopy, wiping my hands, preparing to go through my number. It was her first view of our show, she having joined us only the day before at Memphis. At that moment the band stopped playing, the clowns left off their droll comedy, all the performers stood stock still, 
a hush fell on all that gathered throng. This was always done for effect, to concentrate all eyes on me, to impress on the audience that the big moment of the show had come, and that one jarring note might cause me to misjudge the distance and fall to possible death, for in those days we scorned nets as a safeguard. You perhaps have seen the act I am describing, for I soon had many imitators who afterwards even improved and elaborated on my feet, which is still today always a good attraction for any circus. During this electrical silence, I dropped down to the bar of the trapeze and, hanging by my hands, swung back and forth several times to gain momentum and then, releasing my hold, flew whirling about through the air and caught another swinging trapeze more than twenty feet away. The moment I grasped the bar was always the cue for the band to play and the rest of the performance once more to resume its interrupted course. My act never failed to bring a storm of applause from the most blasé crowd. That day, as I hurried on my way to the dressing tent, Maybelle was still standing where I had first seen her. Her sweet, girlish face was pale with excitement and fear caused by my daring. As I passed, I smiled to her. Say, mister, she said, some day you're going to miss that bar. I made some answer and laughed at her fears, yet I knew that she was speaking the truth, that some day I would miss the bar. That was my first meeting with Maybelle, but not my last. Six months later we were married, and began laying our plans for the day, when together we could retire from the dangers of the show business and settle down on a little farm somewhere in Virginia, where she had come from. But our hopes were never realized. Many of the uninitiated think that married life in my profession is seldom happy. Personally, I do not hold the same opinion. I believe the proportion of disappointing marriages is no greater in public than in private life. One thing I am certain of, that Maybelle and I were ideally mated. Five years of good luck were ours. Something rare in the show business. During all that time, we never wanted for employment nor were we compelled to accept separate engagements. But the old saying about a long lane without a turning soon proved true. One cold rainy day in early spring, only our third week out, at Cincinnati, while hurtling through space from one trapeze to the other, I suddenly realized that Maybelle's first words to me were about to come true. As I flew through the air, they sounded in my ears just as distinctly as when she had spoken them more than five years before. Say, mister, some day you're going to miss that bar. Instinctively, I felt that day had come. Too late, I discovered that I had not attained sufficient momentum to carry me across the intervening distance. I did not miss the bar by very much. In fact, I touched it. With a sickening feeling, I felt its cold, clammy dampness as it slipped through my frantically grasping fingers. 
All through that downward rush I heard Maybelle's agonizing scream, for she understood what had happened. Fate often tempers misfortune. It did for me. The heavy rains of the morning and the night before had turned the lot into a veritable bog, and it was the soft, spongy ground which saved my life. As I lay in the hospital with Maybelle watching over me, one thought began to filter through my benumbed mind, that my days on the trapeze were over, for a while at least, perhaps forever. There were several reasons to make me believe that. A shattered shoulder, fractured ribs, and a broken left arm were some, but greatest of all was the old and seldom discredited belief that one good fall not only breaks the bones, but the nerve, as well, of any aerialist. I had many times scoffed at this tradition, but that day, as I lay on my cot, I was convinced that it was no fallacy, but an undeniable truth. I knew I would never again swing from a trapeze up under the canvas of the big top, and I never did. I shall not bore you with the details of my recovery, Maybelle, of course, continued on with the show. When I was able, I soon set about perfecting something in which we could work double. All those many months I toiled hard, practicing and developing the necessary skill the new act demanded. You can imagine our joy when the next spring found us working together again. It was during this season that we met Garcia. I never liked the man from the very start. He seemed so self-centered, so cocksure of himself and everything he did. Perhaps it was his skill as a marksman which made him so egotistical. However, to give him the credit he deserved, he really put over some very remarkable feats with the rifle and revolver, soon becoming quite an attraction with the show. Garcia was a Spaniard, I believe. At least he had all the appearances of one. He was swarthy of complexion, well-proportioned physically, impulsive, and quick in his movements and decisions. While we never came to open enmity at that time, I soon gained the impression that Garcia had no more love for me than I for him. Yet I suppose neither of us could have offered then any explanation for this secret hatred. Despite the existing feeling, we were much in each other's company, times when I noticed that Maybelle was very nervous and ill at ease, something foreign to her nature. I could not quite understand her and put it down that, knowing the quick temper we both had, she feared some action or word might suddenly break our silently agreed-upon armistice. But I was far from the real cause of her worries. Thus things continued until one day in July, when Garcia failed to put in his appearance for the street parade. He had suddenly left the show the night before at Marengo, Illinois. "'I'm so glad he's gone,' exclaimed Maybelle when she heard the news and her mood seemed to change instantly, as if some great load had been lifted from her. All that morning, and during that afternoon, 
while we were awaiting our call, she was more carefree and light-hearted than I had seen her for months. Also, through our act together, she smiled in a way that told me she was happy. And later, when she left me to do her part of the program alone, she blew one farewell kiss. Maybell, in the vernacular of the profession, did an iron-jaw act, a feat which is now very common but still popular. Hanging only by her teeth to a leather strap attached to a twisted rope cable, she would be hoisted to the top of the big tent, and there, like a dervish, would dizzily whirl about with outstretched arms, all the while swinging pendulum-like high above the ground. That there was grave danger for Maybell you can readily understand. But what one of the many performers of the circus does not daily risk life and limb that the audience may be thrilled and amused? Danger and skill are what the crowd mostly comes to see, and therefore must be supplied. It was Wingo, one of the clowns, who broke the news to me. Brace up, old man, he said as he came into the dressing room and consolingly laid his hand on my shoulder. I've got some mighty bad news for you. Even through the thick mask of grease paint on his face, I could read that something terrible had happened out in the arena. Not about Maybell. She didn't... I choked up with fear, as if someone had suddenly grasped me by the throat. Yes, he sadly answered. Something went wrong with the rope. It broke while she was up. I think she's badly hurt, old man. Wingo was right. Maybell was badly hurt. So badly that she died in my arms on the way to the hospital. But not before she told me all about Garcia. Despite my protests against any exertion as her voice grew weaker and weaker, in almost inaudible whispers, she related how he had tried to win her away from me, how, fearing to tell me of her trials, she had fought the battle alone, repulsing his advances time and again, how only the night before, Garcia had vowed that if he could not have her, no one else would. It was all very clear then. Garcia had fulfilled his threat. Out of revenge, he had partially cut the rope, knowing that sooner or later, under Maybell's weight, the few remaining strands would break and let her drop to certain death. The pain and anguish I suffered I shall pass over. Maybell's death was a blow from which I have never recovered. One thing made me cling to life, the hope that some day I might meet Garcia and serve him as he had my wife. I left the circus immediately and never again went back to it as a performer. Maybell and I had saved quite a neat sum against the day when we were to retire, so financially I had plenty. While I had every physical comfort, mentally I was the most unhappy of men. However, time, that great healer of all wounds, mental or physical, gradually alleviated my sorrow to some extent, but failed to eliminate the hope of finding 
the cause of my misery. I made every effort to locate Garcia, but all in vain. I sought him everywhere in this country, only to arrive at the decision that either he was dead, or changing his name and destroying his identity completely, he had lost himself in Europe. Still, I did not give up the hunt. I fell to studying men's faces, their mannerisms, their gestures, in the hope that some time I might accidentally find the person I was seeking. I felt that, if still alive, a performer of Garcia's ability would sooner or later seek the greatest market for all theatrical wares, New York. With this thought in mind, I came here to live. That my deduction was correct, you shall presently see. When you suggested that we take the small apartment in Harlem, I readily consented, because I was glad to have your companionship, which has been one of the few bright spots in my later years. I also knew that the neighborhood was frequented by theatrical people of all kinds, and to be there would give me further opportunity to prosecute my never-flagging search for Garcia. You may well imagine my surprise when one evening, shortly after we made the change, I saw the one I had sought for so long standing in a window across the court and directly opposite my own. It appeared as if fate had played right into my hand. I recognized Garcia instantly. That he, too, knew me was proven later when he was found dead clutching his weapon. You will undoubtedly remember that shortly after you very kindly invited me to go to the circus which was then playing at the garden. I refused, giving the excuse that such entertainments bored me. The truth of the matter was that I had already been to the performance that same afternoon and had established beyond a doubt that Captain Bonda and Garcia were one and the same person. Why he continued to live so near me for the next few days I cannot understand, unless he was of the opinion that I had not recognized him and that some time the opportunity to be rid of me for good might offer itself. During that time it only remained a question which one would first catch the other off guard. I was well aware of his skill as a marksman, and for that reason never ventured in front of the windows, something I knew he was watching for whenever he was not occupied at the circus. That he feared me was substantiated by the heavy bolt he had placed on his door. You, of course, recall the night of the storm. What happened, you well know. After all, I suppose if the complete evidence could be shown, it would be conclusively proven a case of self-defense. So I may as well tell you. I killed Garcia, or Captain Bonda, as he was then known. Here, after a few formal phrases by way of closing, Montague's manuscript ended. The thing struck me as peculiar. Impossible, I exclaimed to myself as I put the papers aside. 
for me the disastrous affair of that night was no nearer solution than before. True, Montague had established two things, a motive and the claim that he had killed Captain Bonda. But how? That was the question. I sat thinking the whole thing over for many minutes before I remembered the photographs in the envelope. The first one I took out was of a young, very handsome woman, hanging by her teeth, swinging high up under a tent. This was undoubtedly Maybell performing the feat which afterward brought about her untimely end. The moment I looked at the other picture, I knew instantly that I had solved the mystery. It was of the act Montague had perfected by much practice, after his fall from the trapeze. The same young woman of the other photograph was in the scene. Clad in a tight-fitting bodice and fleshings, her wonderfully rounded arms outstretched forming a human cross, she was standing confidently erect, her back against the wall. More than twenty feet away was Montague, also in tights, his right hand uplifted and drawn back, about to hurl one of the many large heavy knives with which he was outlining the young woman's slender form as he drove the dangerous blades deep into the wall, each time barely missing her flesh. I understood it all now. Even after those many years, Montague's skill had not deserted him. When on that stormy night, he had so unerringly cast his dagger at Garcia across the court. End of Montague's New Act